just like that song indicates, we got a lot to be thankful for today. Uh, for instance, we can be thankful we don't live in the 1920s, because that was a wild time, guys. Like, I don't know, like, we didn't know anything about anything back then. We were still putting cocaine and soda, and like, we knew it was bad, but we still did it for like 10 years. We put kids on a postal truck to ship them to grandma and grandpa's house because it was cheaper than a train ticket. That was a real thing. People did that. It was wild. Probably one of the, the wildest parts of the 20s, though, was just how reckless we were with, like, new scientific discoveries. You take something like radium, for instance. You don't know what radium is, right? Like that highly radioactive substance that will riddle your body with disease. Yeah, we were putting that in makeup, and ladies just smeared it on their faces because it glowed in the dark. Uh, we did all kinds of crazy stuff. There's a guy named uh, William J.A. Bailey. Uh, he had several different companies that made products with radium in them. Probably the most profitable was the world's first energy drink. He called it Radithor. And it was just water and radium. That's all it was. <laughs> and people drank it because it was supposed to give them a little pep in their step. And he sold it. He billed it as having a, a bottled perpetual sunshine. And I think what he meant was much like the sun, you too will glow in the dark after you drink Radithor. Uh, but it was just this crazy stuff. And, and it did kind of make people feel a little better. It's maybe some snake oil. But eventually, there grew to be some concerns about Radithor and its effects on the body. It actually got to the point where the government got involved, and there were investigations, and there were hearings. And there was a, a one hearing in particular, there was supposed to be a star witness, it was a young socialite named uh, Eben Morley, I believe the last name was, a blank on that. But Eben was the son of a, a famous golfer in the 20s, so he was one of those kind of like early celebrity kids, kind of like the Kardashians. He didn't actually do anything, but he was just famous for being famous. But he was a big proponent of Radithor, and he said he would drink three servings a day sometimes, and he was supposed to come testify before uh, the government. He couldn't make it, though. His attorney had to go and testify on his behalf because Eben's jaw fell off. Like the whole thing, just gone. His bones were riddled uh, with disease and holes and fractures. They were disintegrating within his body. Uh, and he did shortly thereafter pass away. He had to be buried in a lead-lined coffin just for public safety concern. But this was wild stuff. And yet in the face of all of this evidence and even in the face of an example of how toxic this stuff was, W.J.A. Bailey, he still kept talking about the benefits of Radithor how great it was. He kept drinking it himself. Eventually, he did die of bladder cancer, and his body was exhumed in the 60s and examined, just riddled with radiation damage, as you might suspect. And I just think that's a wild story about a guy who saw a mountain of evidence, who heard the warnings, who saw a personal example of ignoring all these benefits, and yet still chose to pursue this stuff because it was just too difficult to let go of that cash cow. It made him a lot of money. And that's pretty foolish, isn't it? Because somebody's life is worth so much more than money, right? Yeah, this is the interactive part of the sermon where we answer, right? Yes, thank you. I want you to remember that because we're going to revisit that point in a little bit. Today's message is a continuation of a series we've been in for quite some time, a year-ish with Jesus, where we're just working through the book of Matthew. And we're hearing what Jesus has to say, we're learning from his teachings, what it means to actually follow him and belong to his kingdom. And today we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 19 and follow along. 
And if you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind or download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find the sermon notes tool that has our passage broken down into digestible chunks that we're going to work through this morning. So we're talking about wealth. Everybody's favorite topic in church, right? But that's what Jesus talks about in this passage. And, and there's a particular warning that comes along in this story we're going to read today about wealth. And it's something that confronts us, not just in an abstract way, but in a very personal way. And in a couple different ways it confronts us. First thing that we're going to pay attention to is just this general notion that, that wealth can be a stronghold against our faithfulness. There's a particular spiritual quality to this that can be a stumbling block for us, particularly those of us who live in the United States today where our whole economy is based on consuming and buying things and the American dream is to build wealth and acquire. There's a certain challenge to this. And we're going to see that in our story. It starts in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. It goes like this. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what's good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. And if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? He inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. We'll just pause there for a minute. So this young man comes to Jesus, and he has a, a question, not an uncommon question in that particular time period. How do I get eternal life? How do I earn this? And that's really the mindset here, is one of earning. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? And that was common in ancient Judaism. It's common in every religion across the world that has ever existed. And that's kind of what makes Christianity unique because it's not really about what we do that merits us or earns us God's gift of salvation. It's actually what Jesus has done. In fact, a big point of Jesus' teachings throughout this book that we've seen is that we actually can't earn God's favor and God's grace. If you earn it, it's not grace anymore. Only one person can qualify us for that, and that's Jesus and his work. But that's a whole lot to explain here at this point in the story to a guy who's still calling Jesus teacher or rabbi instead of Lord and doesn't really seem to understand who he is fully. But nonetheless, he comes to Jesus because there's something in him that's just not satisfied with the status quo. He's just not content. There's something uneasy inside him about this way of earning eternal life. And so he asks Jesus, and his response is kind of unusual. He says, why do you ask me about this? And when he says that, Jesus isn't trying to downplay his own goodness or his own insight or anything like that. It's just he's trying to tease something out of this young man and bring him to a certain point of curiosity. And we're going to see that by the end of the interaction. And so he says, why do you come and ask me about this? Almost as if to say, this is a common question and there's a common answer. God is good. Follow his commandments. And Jesus lists off some of the more visible commandments that people were to do, that people could look at and say, yep, that's a good guy, something you could check off the box. And that's kind of what this young man had done. He had checked all the boxes he was supposed to check off, as we see as the interaction continues. Verse 20, it says, all these I've kept, young man said. What do I still lack? And that's kind of an interesting response. And when we hear that, we may be tempted to say, really, you've done them all? You kept all the commandments? Are you sure? And we may be a little suspicious. Maybe we see this guy as kind of overestimating his own righteousness. But that's not really the indication that we should walk away with. There's nothing in the text that leads us to that conclusion. Even Jesus doesn't, you know, say, you know, try again, buddy. Let me tell you about how insufficient we are. Jesus just kind of lets it roll. 
So we are probably to assume this is a good guy who really does try to do the things that God commands him to do to the best of his ability. So we've just got this good guy who's trying to be good, who's checking off all the boxes that a good Jewish boy is supposed to check off in order to earn eternal life, and yet he still senses that he lacks something. And maybe you've been there in your own life a time or two where, you know, you're doing all the things you think you're supposed to do. You're going to church, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're doing good deeds, you're in a small group, and you're checking off all the boxes, but there's something, I don't know, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel right. Almost like something's missing. I think that's one of the, the greatest blessings that God could give us is that discontent. Because it's kind of like a check engine light on your dashboard that there's something wrong. We're not supposed to check off boxes and earn salvation. We're supposed to draw closer to him, to follow him, to be changed by him. And that's how we enter into eternal life. It's through the work of Jesus in our lives. So if you felt this way before, I would encourage you to pay, especially you, pay attention to how the story unfolds. This man says, what do I lack? And Jesus has successfully brought him to this, this peak interest where he's never going to be more willing to hear this difficult command that Jesus is going to give. He's never going to be more interested in hearing what Jesus has to say because he's just sort of kind of walked him up to this point where there's going to be a difficult word and he can accept it or deny it. And so Jesus goes on. He says this, verse 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So here's the difficult word that Jesus gives. You want to be perfect? And by the way, perfect in the New Testament, it almost never has like a moral connotation. We can't be morally perfect because we have sin in our lives. and That's why we need Jesus. Rather, in the New Testament, when perfect is used, most of the time it, means, it has the connotation of like being complete or being mature or being whole. So this young man, he says, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, well, if you want to be whole, here's what you need to do. And there's this two-part command. Sell everything and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And those two things, they can't be separated. Because if he were to sell everything he had and give to the poor, that's not really going to fix the problem. There's an issue at play here, and it's not a lack of generosity. It was commanded in the Jewish faith to give alms to the poor. This young man is almost certainly giving generously to the poor. To sell everything he had to give it to the poor would only leave him broken, destitute, unless something else filled that void. And that's why Jesus says, I want you to come follow me. Because what's at play here is not just a simple matter of greed. It's a division of the heart. This young man serves a particular master. The master of wealth, possession, money, whatever you want to call it. And sensing this, Jesus says, I want you to unshackle yourself from one master and hitch your wagon to a different one. One that can actually satisfy and one that can actually bring you to a place of eternal life. And this is the choice that this young man has. And we know that this is a spiritual issue, that there is a war being waged in his heart. Because when we read his reaction, it says, he went away sad. And that's too soft of a translation. The word that's used there is actually better translated as he was grieved. It's the exact same word that's used of Jesus' disciples just a, a few paragraphs earlier when he says, hey, fellas, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And the disciples were grieved. The prospect of losing his wealth was so distressing 
that he grieved in the same way that somebody grieves the loss of a friend or a loved one. That's an intense connection to his wealth. And that's why we say that wealth is easily a stronghold against our faithfulness. It's something that can easily divide our hearts because it's something that connects us to this world that is just disappearing and is doomed to be destroyed. At the end of days, this thing is done. And if we have hitched our wagon to this and we have held on to all the things of this world, we will find ourselves trapped in it. And the invitation that Jesus gives to this young man is one that he extends to all of us even today and has extended for the last 2,000 years. Quit following one master and hitch your wagon to somebody who can actually deliver, someone who can actually satisfy, and someone who can actually save. That's why we say that there's a challenge in this particular story that wealth is a spiritual stronghold. It doesn't have to be. It isn't always. But it can very easily become the stumbling block, especially, as we said, in a culture that is so consumed, no pun intended, with consumption, with using, with acquiring, with accumulating, with getting more. That's sort of the American dream in a lot of ways, is to build success and to build wealth and to build a life of ease with that white picket fence and that house and those two cars in the garage. And, you know, that's our dream. That's what we aspire towards. And here's a story that challenges that in some ways. We're confronted in this story. But it gets more personal than that because it's one thing to just point at a guy who lived 2,000 years ago and say, man, he really got it wrong and then walk away, it's an entirely different thing to realize that this is a story that confronts you and I today and challenges us to reassess our relationship with wealth and possession. And there is a relationship that we have with it that we are challenged to reassess and potentially transform. And if we're going to do that, I think there are two temptations we need to be aware of, and we need to resist both of them. Now, these aren't directly taken from the text, but there are details in the text that lead us to these kinds of conclusions. The first temptation we've got to resist is thinking that money is not a spiritual issue or matter. It's really easy to assume that our faith is about spiritual things. It's about the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins. It's about learning to forgive others and to love your neighbor as yourself and to be kind and all of these really ethereal internal qualities and say, well, money's not any of that. Money, wealth, possession, that's not a spiritual thing. And when we have that mindset, we tend not to treat them as spiritual things or apply spiritual principles or priorities to them. And that's just kind of backwards, because Jesus talks about wealth, possession, and money all the time, and in very spiritual contexts. You just take a look at this story. There's this really interesting observation. We have three phrases that are used in this exchange. We've got uh, eternal life that the young man asks about. We've got the kingdom of God that Jesus mentions, and then we didn't read it, but in verse 24, immediately after this, we've got the disciples saying, well, who then can be saved? Eternal life, kingdom of God, saved. Those are very spiritual ideas and concepts. And this is the only place in the entire book of Matthew where all three of them show up in the same time. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And what's the context of this conversation in which these three incredibly significant spiritual concepts show up? We're talking about money and wealth and possession. Because money is an inherently spiritual matter. We can sum it all up a little easier if we were just to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous collections of teachings, and one of his most extensive. If we were to go look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus sums it up. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
There is an intrinsic connection between our treasure, our wealth, our possessions, our money, and our hearts, between our spirit. And we might say, well, what is that connection? Well, Jesus says, it's going to tell the truth about where your priorities are. And that's true in so many ways. Here's an example. Um, So some of you may know, some of you may not know, uh, for the last month I've been driving around a really sweet blue sports car. That thing was a ton of fun. Uh, I I didn't buy it, don't worry. Some of you are like, we're paying our preacher too much. Um, I didn't buy it. I, I won a contest. I got to drive it around for a month. It was great. But I had to give it back this week. And there was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, right? But I had to turn it in. Just so happens that this week, my actual vehicle, my 21-year-old Durango, decided it was done. It had lived a full life, and it crapped out. <laughs> so I went car shopping. And you know how car shopping goes. You got to ask the question of, you know, how much do I want to spend? I want payments. Do I not want payments? If I do, how much can I afford and swing? You know, so you go through this whole thing. And, and for me, a car is very utilitarian, um, I don't need something flashy. I don't need a blue sports car for crying out loud. But like, it's just something that gets me from A to B. And that's how I feel. But if I were to go and drop like 60, 70 grand on a new like, you know, sports car or a truck or whatever, that kind of stands in contradiction to what I just said, doesn't it? Like you're not going to spend that kind of cash on something that's not important to you. Or if I were to sacrifice other parts of my life and suppress those in order to facilitate this massive monthly payment, that also says, you know, I think maybe it's more important to you than you realize to drive a fancy car because you're dropping a ton of money on it. And the opposite is true too. If I say that like a nice car is super important, it's like one of my top three priorities, but I'm driving around this rusty old beater, that kind of stands in contradiction to what I'm saying, doesn't it? Money tells the truth about our priorities. Where we put it, how we spend it, regardless of what we may say, what claims we may make, where we put our money, that's where our mouth is. Or we need to put our money where our mouth is, I guess. Where we put our money is where our priority is. Or as Jesus says, where you put your treasure, that's where your heart will be also. Because there's an intrinsic connection between these two things. Money is a spiritual matter. It speaks to our internal allegiances. It speaks to our priorities. It speaks to where our our, our affections really lie. And if this is true, if money really is a spiritual thing, as Jesus seems to indicate all over the place, well, then it needs to have spiritual principles applied to it. And our spirituality, our faith, must speak into it and dictate its usages and its place in our lives. So that's one temptation we've got to resist, is just thinking that money is just something God doesn't care about, because he obviously does. And there's another temptation we've got to resist as well if we're going to reassess our relationship to wealth and possessions. We have to resist this idea that rich is whatever the next step above me might be. And here's what I mean by that. There's a certain temptation to always think, well, I'm, I'm not rich, I'm not well off, but this person up here, they're, they're doing really well, they're rich. For instance, if you, if you make 30 grand a year, you probably say, I'm not rich, but that guy that makes 50 grand a year, man, he's doing really well. Or if you make 50 grand a year, you probably say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm middle class. But that guy that makes 75, he's, he's rich. And if you're that guy that makes 75, then you probably say, man, I'm just living a middle class life. But that guy that makes 100, he's rich. And if you make 100, you might be saying, man, that money's gone before it hits my bank account. That guy that makes 150, though, he's rich. We have this tendency to always think that rich is whatever the next step above us is. And there's a trap in that because it provides this convenient excuse to think that all the teachings of Scripture on riches and wealth and prosperity, they apply to other people, but not me. 
Like this story about the rich young ruler. It says he had great wealth. Man, he was rolling in dough. That's not me. That's that other guy. It's a very convenient excuse. And it's just not true, to be honest with you. You look at that phrase that we read there about the rich young man. He says he went away sad because he had great wealth. Again, that's not the best translation. More literally, it says he went away sad because he had many possessions. And you've got to remember, this was written 2,000 years ago in a time where people barely owned anything other than the shirts on their back. So if you had many possessions, you likely were very wealthy. But in 2,000 years, the socioeconomic bottom has only risen to the point where I'm going to venture to guess all of us in this room have many possessions, right? How many of you have appliances in your kitchen? Okay, again, this is the interactive portion. Yeah, appliances in the kitchen, right? How many of us have more than one outfit in our closets? Okay. I don't want to ask the question, how many shoes do you have? But you, I'll let you answer that question to yourself. How many of us, uh, you know, we have a TV in our home. How many of us have more than one TV in our home? How many of us have a bad habit of collecting old TVs that nobody wants anymore? <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how many of us drove here in a vehicle? Maybe it was one of several that your family owns. Some of us this morning, we are using these little devices to read our Bibles because we didn't want to bring our actual Bible to church today, which means we have multiple ways to read the Bible. Y'all, we got many possessions. And what that means is that this passage isn't about somebody else. It's not about the guy who's just above us. It's about you and me. And there may still be a certain temptation to say, okay, yeah, kind of, but I'm, I'm not doing that well. I want you to think about it like this. We said that we always want to look at that person that's just above us as being rich, right? Well, there's a lot of people that are looking at you and me today saying, man, they're rich. Let's put this graphic up on the screen. This is a data from 2021. It might be a little hard to make out, but it's an infographic about the global wealth breakdown across people and regions in the world. There are several other pages to this that are interesting. This one's most relevant. According to this infographic, if you have a net worth of $10,000, and what that means is if you were to uh, liquidate all your assets, your savings accounts, your investments, your 401k, your IRAs, if you were to sell your vehicles, sell all your possessions, and, and any equity you have in your house, and then you minus whatever debts you have, if you have $10,000, you are wealthier than 55% of the planet. 55% of the globe, 3.5 billion people are pointing at you saying, man, you're rich. If you have a net worth of $100,000, which again, would include all equity in your home, whatever business you have. Sell your cars, your investments, all that stuff, minus your debts. If you have $100,000, you are wealthier than 87% of the globe. I don't know how many billion of people that is. That's at least four or five billion people who point at you and say, man, you're rich. If you have a net worth of a million dollars, and again, remember, that's your home, that's your IRAs, your, your retirement accounts, everything. If you were to liquidate your life and you have a million dollars, you are richer than 98.9% of the globe. And almost seven and a half billion people point at you and say, man, you're rich. I would say most of us probably fall somewhere in that spectrum. We're rich, guys. Rich is not whatever is the step above us. Rich is the guy we look at and the little girl that we look at in the mirror every morning. We are wealthy. 
And if we are wealthy, that means that the principles of this story apply directly to our lives. There is a relationship that we have with wealth and possession and money. And we have to reassess what that relationship is because it is oftentimes a stranglehold and a stronghold on our faithfulness to Christ. It can very easily divide our hearts in half. And as Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other or you will serve one and despise the other. There's a choice that needs to be made. This is a cautionary tale, this rich young man. And if we were to wave it away and ignore it and say, oh, that's not me. Well, guys, we're basically W.J.A. Bailey. We're looking at all the evidence. We're looking at a case study and an example of somebody who fell victim to this poison and yet choosing to say, you know what? I'm going to drink the radium still. What could go wrong? Because we find it so painfully grieving to let go of the wealth and the possessions and the things of this world. We are making the foolish decision to choose money over life. It's a hard story, y'all. But that's not where it ends. There's one more challenge in this tale. It challenges us to create a have but not hold relationship to wealth. A have but not hold relationship. What do we mean by that? Well, if we were to bounce back up to the beginning of Matthew chapter 19, we would find that Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce. And marriage is one of those to have and to hold relationships. I will have this person now, but I will hold on to them forever. For better or worse, for rich or poor, and sickness and health, till death do us part. That's the gist of that passage, and that's what marriage ought to be. Money is not that relationship. Wealth and money is a have but not hold. We do not want to hang on to this stuff till death do us part. Because it will corrupt our hearts. So we want to develop this kind of relationship. The have part is easy. We get that. You have to have money. You can't just not have money. You got bills to pay. You got mouths to feed. You got to have some savings wisely stored back because Murphy's Law is going to kick in and your Durango is going to die the same week you have to hand in your free car. And you got to be able to do something about that, right? There's going to be stuff that happens in our lives that we are encouraged in the Proverbs to be wisely prepared for. So you have to have money. But we don't want to hold on to it. And we don't want to accumulate more and more wealth and more and more possessions because the more we have and the more we hold, the harder it is to let go of. It's kind of like, uh, like this. If, if you're free diving, you don't have a scuba tank, there's no air tank or anything, you just have goggles. And you want to free dive 30, 40 feet underwater and look at the coral and the fish and everything, you're going to need some weights to get down there. So you're going to hold on to these sandbags or something, and they're going to, you're going to sink down to the ocean floor, and you're going to look around. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. But eventually, you've got to resurface and breathe, right? So you can try to hold on to all that stuff, those weights and those sandbags. You can try to swim up to the surface and breathe the breath of life and live, but you're not going to make it because those things are going to weigh you down. And you are going to be stuck on that ocean floor, left there to die. The only way to escape the only way to live, to rise, to breathe the breath of life is to let go of that stuff. Leave it on the ocean floor and rise. And wealth is kind of the same thing. It is stuff that belongs in this world. This world that someday, sooner or later, we don't know, but someday will perish. 
And if we insist on hanging on to it, if we insist on holding on to it, it is going to weigh us down and trap us here. Our hearts will be divided. And as the young man illustrates, it is so easy to end up serving this master instead of the one that can actually save and give life. The only way to avoid this trap is to have, but not hold. We've got to let it go. We've got to give. We've got to build the habit of giving in our lives. Now, this is the point where some people go, oh, here we go. The church is talking about money. They just want us to give. I'm going to level with you. I don't want your money. I want you to live. I want you to breathe the breath of life and hit your wagon to somebody who can actually save. Giving is not just about supplying the church for its mission and its needs. Giving is about maintaining a healthy relationship to wealth in this world. We have to develop this habit of letting go. Our lives, I've not tried this illustration, so we're going to see how it goes, gang. Our lives are kind of like this balloon. Throughout our life, it just gets filled with more stuff and more wealth with more possession. And you know what? It's going to fill, and it's going to fill, and it's going to fill. And our world would look at this and go, man, look how full your life is. It must be great to be so filled with so much stuff. But there's another perspective on this. We can also look at this and go, man, your life is so close to destruction. Because within, I don't know, one, two, maybe three pumps, this thing's going to pop. It's going to be destroyed and it's going to shatter. It's going to be a disaster. The only way to avoid that fate is to give some of it away. And you know what? It's kind of crazy. As you live your life, you're going to continue to accumulate. And you're going to continue to amass. And you're going to continue to have more wealth and possession and, and, and prosperity flow into your life. And we're going to run into that same problem. Which is why giving one time is great. That's fantastic. But it needs to be a regular habit in our lives. Because so long as we're letting go, so long as we're in the regular habit of giving, we could just keep pumping away, maybe all morning. Yeah, I was hoping that'd be better, but whatever. But you get the point. Giving is how we maintain this relationship of having but not holding, using but not amassing this wealth. So how do we give? Well, one way to give is to give to your local church. We look at this, this story and this young man, he's told, sell everything you have and give to the poor. That's another way that we can give. We can use the possessions and the wealth that God has given us to advance his kingdom, maybe through acts of generosity, maybe by helping your family in a hard time, maybe by giving to your local church. However you choose to give, we need to build this regular habit of generosity into our lives because that's how we maintain this healthy relationship. Now, people always ask the question, too, well, how much do we give? Do we tithe? Tithe, if you're not familiar, that is an Old Testament term that means give 10% of your income. I might ruffle some feathers when I say this. I don't think tithing is a New Testament concept. It's an important part of the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament, but we're not in that covenant. We are told in the New Testament to give. You can read 1 Corinthians 8, talks about giving a lot. We're told to give generously. We're told to give joyfully, and we're told to give in accordance with our means. Now, that can mean different things to different people. If you're a single parent, two teenagers that are eating you out of house and home, you might look at 10% and go, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. 
you know what? According to your means might mean 4%, 5%. You might be somebody who God has blessed abundantly with wealth and possession. And you may look at 10% and go, yeah, okay, no problem. And maybe that's not in keeping with your means. Maybe it's 20%. Maybe it's 25%. I don't know. God has blessed us abundantly. And all we're told to do is to give generously in keeping with the kindness he has shown us. How you give is between you and God. I can't speak into that. But I will say this. This goes to all of us. Don't cheat yourself when it comes to giving. This is a medicine for the heart. And just like all medicines, it doesn't right, it doesn't work if you don't take the right dosage. It becomes too easy for giving just to become a box we've checked off. I went to church, read my Bible, said my prayers, gave my gift, you know, and we're no better than this rich young man who's just trying to earn his salvation by doing all the right things. This is a matter of worship. This is a matter of health. This is a matter of honoring the God who has filled our life with his possessions and his abundance. And our job is to respond appropriately and worshipfully. So that's all just put on your mind there. As we move into a time of communion, we're just going to go straight into it, guys, because my communion guy canceled this morning. So we're just going to, we're making it work. As we go into a time of communion, I just want to stay on that idea about giving. You think about God. God has given generously. He's given abundantly. He gave us Christ. He didn't withhold. He didn't cheap out. He didn't say, well, you know, I'll take care of some of your sins. I'll give a little bit. He gave abundantly in his only son. And he didn't just cover some of our sins. He covered all of our sins because Jesus completely and totally died on that cross. He was completely and totally poured out so that he could completely and totally save us. That's the kind of abundance and generosity that God has shown us. Everything that we have in our lives materially is just icing on top of that cake. And so as we come to a time of communion, I think it's appropriate to reflect on that. To reflect on this idea that wealth, prosperity, it's all just in addition to the grace that God has already given us. It's in addition to the love he's already shown us. And that our job is simply to respond worshipfully and lovingly to all of it. So as these emblems come around, I would encourage you to look at them. The, the bread that represents the body of Jesus that was broken, the juice that represents his blood that was poured out. And think about the cost. The cost that God paid in order to save you. And then give thanks. Rejoice. Praise him. And recognize that he is somebody who has filled your life with so much abundance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for the opportunity just to gather and to reflect on your generosity. You have filled our lives. Whether we have a lot materially or not, you have filled us abundantly with blessings that last into the next life. As we think about the things that you've entrusted to us today, let us use them reasonably. Let us use them faithfully and in a way that will guard our hearts and hitch our wagon to you. Because you are the only one worth following. 